There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, Featuring me, Mike Calvin, Paul Hayward, the columnist and author, and Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. Well, they got there in the end. At last, Manchester United have a manager befitting their traditions and ambitions. Ralph Rangnick may only take the team for six months, but he should be the kingmaker in choosing a permanent successor. And, over the following two years, he should have a pivotal role in shaping the club's future. He's a uniquely influential coach with a distinctive style. Is that what United have needed all along, Paul? Well, he's a heavyweight and he was an influencer before they invented influencers. So he comes (laughs) with all sorts of impressive credentials. As it's our job to um, analyse rather than cheerlead, I suppose I'm going to raise a few interesting questions. They're not necessarily bad questions, but I'm just intrigued to know the answers. I mean, one is, when he comes in as interim manager, will he impose his ideas and style and his theories on the team? Will he turn Manchester United in six months into a Ranić team? If so, what happens after that? Does the new manager come in and continue with those ideas? Or does he start again and say, forget what you've just been taught, you know, this is a fresh start? And let's face it, Manchester United have had lots of styles of management, lots of fresh starts since Sir Alex Ferguson retired. And then, of course, what's Ranier going to do after that? If he stays on a cons- as a consultant, just an advisor, that's one thing. If he stays on in more of a director or a football role calling the shots, will, that, will the new manager or a new manager potentially be wary of his role at the club? None of this is intended to be negative. I'm just wondering how it's all going to work out because they've, they haven't just hired a coach to mind the shop for six months. They've, they've hired somebody with a very distinctive and strong presence and a set of theories. And you just wonder how he is going to shape the development of the club for the next two, three, five years. Yeah, well, you are recruiting someone who's come across as a, as a, a tutor almost, sometimes a, a mentor to people like you know, Klopp, Tuchel, Hassenhutl, Nagelsmann. So you, you are, you know, you're importing the best. I suppose the one thing about him, Dom, is that he will be able, because of his, his network, which is huge, and a personal network, he will know the sort of person that United needs to take it forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you'd imagine that if you've, if you've appointed him for for six months, that he has to play some some role in what happens next. Although I do find it a bit odd that 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 we're still hearing that Pochettino would be the man that they'd pursue in the summer on a permanent basis. And Pochettino plays a high energy pressing game as well, so maybe he would fit the bill to follow on on from from six months of Ranić. That that might work, but you know, maybe that Ranić's got other ideas and, and and wants to push him in a different different way while he he does his consultancy. Also, what happens if he does brilliantly well? What happens if the next six months are you know, go go swimmingly well as well as as well as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's first you know few months went in charge of of, of United? Do, are they then tempted to make this a longer term? Deal. I mean, we're jumping to. We're looking far too far ahead, obviously, at the moment. But I, I, this setup uh, sort of lends itself to to that confusion and that and that risk. And I, I suspect that's 
also why we saw the flurry of stories linking Pochettino to the job in the week because from him looking from the outside in he probably he must be concerned that the, that the interim does a very very good job and his chances of going to to Old Trafford in the summer are dashed as a result so it's a really really interesting and delicate situation but it's it's great fun to see I mean back in, go back to January and Ralph Rangnick was off the Chelsea job until the end of the season that was only like a four month contract because that's what remained of the season at that time and he he wasn't willing to take that on because he he wanted a longer term deal he wanted 18 months obviously the the lure of Manchester United is has has tempted him to take that short term option with this sort of intriguing consultancy to follow but I just think it's it's fantastic. It's 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 exciting. It's intriguing though because I don't quite work. I can't work out where the balance is going to be for the next few years. Yeah, well, you know, United have a a structure of sorts in place already, so it does. It is going to be a bit crowded in there. I suppose what we're doing, Paul, is is putting together the pieces of a human jigsaw here, and and you know there is always a danger when we're looking about past relationships that you you know two and two and end up making five but if you think about it one of United's principal weaknesses has been in recruitment now Ranić worked very well with Paul Mitchell at Leipzig Paul Mitchell obviously worked as as head of recruitment at Southampton and, and and Spurs so there's your Pochettino link is that the sort of way that football works it's 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 almost even at the highest level and exercise in getting your mates together. It is. And again, that raises a question about how that's going to work in relation to the existing structure at Man United, because, you know, the internal politics of the club are that they felt a bit stung by, a bit bruised by what happened with Van Gaal and Mourinho. They felt they wasted, in some cases, an awful lot of money in the transfer market. So they bought the whole process kind of into this uh, committee system led by Ed Woodward and John Murta and Matt Judge. And um, and they felt much happier with that. They felt they had more control over it. And they really went to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and pretty much made recommendations to him and then took his opinion into account. But I think they like the control they now have over the spending, that that little committee of, 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 of recruiters that they set up after Mourinho because, and, and in fact, during Mourinho, because as I say, they were so bruised by working with him. So the question then is, do they then hand over that power to Ralph Rangnick from next summer onwards? Do they say to him, right, you're the dominant voice now in recruitment? They may do. They may surrender the power they've taken back. But these are all questions that, you know, we we don't have answers to yet. And it'll be interesting to see whether Rangnick actually negotiated that two-year consultancy role purely because he didn't just want to come for six months. I mean, where did that come from? Did it come from the club or did did that come from him you know it'll be interesting to find out yeah I suppose when you look at Sunday's first well it's not going to be his first assignment is it he's unlikely to have all the formalities completed by by the time United rock up at Stamford Bridge on Sunday but Dom you know let's look at this realistically while there's been an overreaction to what was you know okay at best a, a competent performance against Villarreal United are unlikely to withstand Chelsea's pace and intelligence and intensity, are they? Not on paper. I I don't know. I ended up that I was at the bridge on on Tuesday to watch them absolutely hammer a very ineffective Juventus team, and I just had a slight concern about Sunday. Not not on the back of the Villarreal result for United because because as you say, I mean for, for long periods in that first half. Villarreal were the dominant team and they should have really taken some of the chances that came their way and it was David De Gea yet again who was saving United skins but but uh, the fact that Ranić has come in that they've appointed their interim they have now a, potentially a bit of stability happening at that club and and also he is he is a high caliber coach and they'll want to impress there's, there's just coupled with the fact that Ben Chilwell has a long-term injury and you've just seen Jadon Sancho revive on the right of Manchester United, up against presumably, presumably Marcus Alonso at the weekend. On paper, Chelsea should still win very, very comfortably. Chelsea are playing some wonderful, wonderful football and look a real force of nature. But but I think that game is slightly tougher than we maybe we would have built it a week back. I think um, there will be a bit more about United that day. But that's not to say they'll be able to withstand them. Chelsea, as I say, they've got the 
the vibrancy of their all the kids that have come through Cobham and, and are, are making waves in that first team. Rhys James is almost, you know, we, we 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 talk about him every week. He's he is a phenomenon at the moment. He's playing virtually as an auxiliary striker for long periods in games. That right foot is brutal. But I mean, the likes of Callum Hudson-Odoi have never enjoyed this prolonged run in the Chelsea first team before. Ruben Loftus-Cheeks look, look, looks a, a player revived. Trevor Chaloba, no one anticipated him making his mark in the Chelsea first team this season. He was he was destined for another loan out, and yet he's well, he's keeping Andreas Christensen out of the team at the moment. I mean, it's 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 really impressive what they're doing. And when when you sort of ally that with the experience they have within the ranks and the potentially the the return of Romelu Lukaku as well, they they've got something about them. And yeah, they will stretch United, but um, maybe not not it won't be the conclusive thrashing that we thought it would have been a week back. Mm, yeah. Is there a case to be made, Paul, that Chelsea are the strongest team in Europe at the moment? I would say so, yes. Obviously, reigning European champions, they've, if anything, they've improved since then, since they um, beat Manchester City. They, they obviously laid down an important marker in that final as well because they found a, a way of negating Man City in that game, of, of, uh, of smothering them. And that, that was an important statement, I think. And again, they've just, they've just got stronger because more players, as Dom said, more players have come into the mix more individual players are improving their defensive solidity is the whole platform that they work from. They've got an agreed structure and tactical style and they have, you know, 20 or 22 title winning caliber players or interchangeable players. So in every game, you look at their bench and you think, Christ, you know, five of those are going to come on. And they're not, they're not five people who are, who've been underperforming and are going to get bits and bobs of action here or there. They're five people who, who are in top form. And Tuchel's biggest achievement so far, apart from the, you know, the tactical now, is to get just about every one of those Chelsea players contributing. And there is a sense... Dom, of a, of a plan coming together here, isn't there? Because of that academy model, okay, it's a profit centre in one way. I think they raised about 90 million in the summer from three or four players, but they're continuing to produce viable world-class talent. You know, there's been a, there's been a few comparisons this week with the class of 92. You have that, but on top of that, you've got a coach in Tuchel who makes players better. And that's probably, going back to United, what they've been lacking for the last few years. Tuchel has undoubtedly improved those players, all of them, even the older ones. I think even Thiago Silva would argue that he's he's improved him over the the time that they've worked together at PSG and Chelsea. And you're right about the there is a there is a productivity to the the academy that does fund the first team as well. I mean, as you say, they turned a profit this summer despite spending 100 million pounds on on Romelu Lukaku. They're quite shrewd with the way they do their business when they, when it's outgoing. I mean, the buyback option on Livramento being a, a case in point. Okay, it would cost them 30, 40 million, whatever it is, to bring him back. But, you know, if he if he continues his development at the way, the pace that he started it at Southampton, then then that would actually end up probably looking like a bargain. Mark Gurry as well, I think they've got fir- first option on any, on any bid that comes in to Palace for him. And he's done very, very well there. So yeah, it's it is a culmination of a lot of work. It won't always be like this. There will be periods when, even with the elite facility that Chelsea have developed, that the the kids coming through just aren't quite good enough to make it into the first team. And indeed, it, it it's gone through periods like that in the past. I mean, when I first started covering Chelsea, probably for the first decade after coming down south to to cover them, the common thread was that. Oh, the Chelsea first uh, academy doesn't produce anybody. It hasn't produced anybody since John Terry, and that that was that was the theme for about ten years. And then suddenly, you know, a, a combination of a a very good group. Well, I haven't mentioned Mason Mount yet, and he hasn't had a best of season, but he's very much in there as well. A very 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 good group coming through the FIFA transfer ban, allowing them an opportunity in the first team. Frank Lampard playing his, his part in, in encourage them, encouraging them to come through. And Tuchel has inherited a, a group that did have some experience of Premier League football and Champions League football, and were ready to to take on his, you know, the tactical acumen that he was going to impress upon them. And, and yeah, it's it's the it's the perfect recipe really for success. They 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 are fantastic. And every, every week now we sort of come away saying we can't write another piece about what a great win that was for the Chelsea Academy. But, it, I mean, we did that after Norwich, we did it after Juventus. It's just, 
it is a, a regular occurrence now. And in a wider sense, Paul, you know, you've been looking at the England or the history of the England team for your forthcoming book. The national team is benefiting from that type of youth development policy, isn't it? I know it's very difficult because it's a big subject, but what are the key factors, do you think, in the why, in the reasons why we, we're getting, and I hesitate to use this phrase because it's an awful phrase, but you know, another golden generation? Yeah, and it is a it's a dramatic turnaround from the time when you know thirty three percent of Premier League starters were eligible to play for the England team, and there were deficiencies in all sorts of areas, and there was in some cases there was a technical and tactical deficiency in 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 England squads. Now Gareth Southgate's squad is absolutely brimming with players who have certain shared characteristics, one of which is an incredible ability to take and work the ball in tight spaces, a kind of a technical acumen that they all have, as, as well as dashes of, you know, natural ability and ingenuity and, and match-winning qualities and strength and power, which are more kind of traditional English virtues. So to see this, to see the England pitch flooded with this number of young players coming through Premier League academies who are capable of, of playing international football and, and top-level Champions League football... I mean, it's not only a delight, but it's a bit of a surprise because four or five years ago, you would have said that the Premier League academies were, weren't were really producing enough players like that. As, as Dom said, you know, Chelsea was an example of a club where you just didn't see them come through. Now they're flooding through. And the transformation in the last four or five years has been just astonishing. Mm. And I suppose wherever you look, you know, let's take Liverpool as an example. You know, they've, they've got players coming through there as well and improving themselves in a, in a squad of the highest quality. We talked about Ranić and his influence. You know, Klopp was, a, was, a, was a, a disciple to a degree, Gagan pressing and all that. Liverpool at home to Southampton on Saturday, Dom. I don't know if this is just me, but I've, I've, I've had the impression this season that there's been a renewed intensity about, about their pressing. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'm... I'm... I suppose it it might have something to do with the supporters being back in the ground. I think it does play a part in that. I think it must be easier to to sort of whip up that frenzy when you've got forty thousand people screaming for you at Anfield. So that that probably adds to their energy. I think it just felt like a fresh start this season for for Liverpool last year. Okay, they had the late rally to get back into the Champions League places, but that mid season. Lull, where they lost six on the bounce at home, I think, and it was it was almost like a prolonged hangover, albeit played behind closed doors, all rather miserable, but a hangover from winning the title the previous year, and they just they just come back with with real zest to their play again this year. That front line looks revived. I think Yacht has added to it again. We're now seeing him really, really hitting his his stride as a, as a Liverpool player and, and providing competition for. For Firmino, whoever he could replace any of them, really. To be honest, uh, he's he's that good. There's a they've benefited obviously with players being back to fitness. I mean, the, the fact they've got Van Dijk and Firmino more often than not up and down their spine makes a real difference. It's, it appears to have sort of rejuvenated people like Oxlade Chamberlain as well, which has helped. And yeah, that they will be it will be them, Chelsea and and Manchester City that are competing for the title. But Southampton will pose its own their own threat to Liverpool. They've done well. They've done well at Manchester City this season already. Okay, they maybe not they've not found the rhythm in their own results so much and they're sort of languishing bottom half, I think. But but on their day they, they can cause problems and Liverpool will yeah, will need to be as ruthless as they have been in recent weeks if they're going to prevail in that match. Mm. Well, you know, speaking of, of that front three, Mo Salah seventeen in seventeen, Paul, he's making the the remarkable pretty much routine I suppose what that does highlight is a pretty key question is how do you think Liverpool will cope with the absences in January for the um, African Cup of Nations yeah well the reservation about Liverpool's squad is always that it does it lacks the depth of of Chelsea and Manchester City so when an African Nations Cup comes along the Liverpool fans are bound to worry about that more it's going to create gaps in the team it's going to require understudies to step up and and fill the shoes of some you know fairly major names fairly major match winning players Klopp though is so brilliant at sort of concealing these gaps and making the best of what he has 
I mean, just to endorse Dom's point, the fact that they... Last year, you looked at Liverpool and thought, well, that was a wonderful thing while it lasted, the, the, but the, the whole Klopp mania thing might have burnt itself out because the front three have fizzled out and it, and it, it, was, it was great, but it's gone. It was a short-lived miracle. But they've come roaring back this season and they're in- incredibly compelling to watch. Uh, you just wonder whether they can sustain it generally and whether they can sustain it, sustain it, as you say, Mike, if they lose players to an international tournament. When you've got, though, players coming back who've not really fulfilled themselves, and I'm thinking of Thiago here, Dom, that goal in midweek, that was ridiculous, wasn't it? Did he mean it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, the, the angles behind the goal in particular is, is something else, isn't it? When you see the arc of the ball, it's incredible. Yeah, look, he's got something... It seems weird to say a player that's been at Barcelona and, and Bayern Munich still has something to prove, but he... But he hasn't really imposed himself at Liverpool in the way that we all expected him to. There have been flashes and maybe something like that, a, a daisy cutter of that that splendour, would, would, will we'll kick him on now and, and we'll see Thiago in, in, you know, at his best in the, in, in the weeks ahead. But it was, it was stunning. We all knew he's capable of things like that because he's, he's forged his reputation on quality like that over the years. We just haven't seen quite enough of it in in this Liverpool team, but what an option for for Klopp to have. That is, it, Afcon's a really good point, and 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 also fixture clutter. I mean, we, we we all you know we can say that Chelsea Chelsea only have one player potentially going to Afcon in in a big one in Edward Mendy, but but they have got you know the world's most expensive goalkeeper who can who can step in <laughs> potentially for a few weeks. But but when it comes to fixture clutter, there is the potential. As soon as Afcon finishes, that Chelsea have to go off and play the the FIFA Club World Cup in Abu Dhabi, which will be another presumably ten days, two weeks again <laughs> abroad, travelling, stretching the squad, potentially throughout that issue with clashes with the FA Cup back home, which we saw with Liverpool the season before last, I think, and 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 it will add to it will add to the the clutter in Chelsea's schedule, and you know if. It may be that things like that actually end up playing into Manchester City's hands potentially. It'll be really interesting to see how how Thomas Tuchel how deals with that and and juggles his resources for 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 that really onerous schedule in the new year. Mm. Speaking of City, Paul, the contrast in midweek with an almost decadent PSG team was that instructive to you? Yes, it was. That was the kind of image of PSG that we always have in our minds. That's the kind of almost default mechanism of PSG for them to play as, you know, more or less 11 individuals. And so many managers have tried to cure it. Some have had success for brief periods, but it still keeps coming out, doesn't it? And Pochettino must have looked at that performance and thought, well, you know, we're going nowhere if we do that because the front three who underperformed on the whole were completely detached from the rest of the team. The rest of the team got overrun by... Manchester City's brilliant, creative, attacking play, the fluidity of it. And they were really they were really shown up by Man City. And, you know, when Man City are like that, they're pretty irresistible. But if you don't do something to stop them the way Chelsea did in the Champions League final, then you're in big trouble. And I think the big my big reservation about City is that I always prefer a real number nine to a false number nine any day of the week. And Gabriel uh, Jesus is in there scoring the odd goal, but he doesn't really convince as a elite number nine. So I still think Manchester City need a striker at some point. Sorry if we're in the province of a cheeky punt, Don. Um, Erling Haaland, Norway out of the World Cup, Dortmund out of the Champions League. Haaland out the door in January? I'd be surprised if that move happened in, in January, not least because for Dortmund, they, they have to qualify again for the Champions League next year and they'll, they'll see Haaland you know, once, once fit as being as their ticket in, back into that competition and have to hit the, he'll have to hit his form in the second half of the season and, and score the goals that, that, that get them back up there so that they can compete. And then in the summer, that becomes a viable option. And it'll be interesting to see what suitors he has in the summer. I mean, City have often been mentioned. You'd imagine that with the amount of chances that City create, that that Haaland would quite fancy scoring quite a few goals for them. So that maybe that does become an option then in the summer. But mid-season, I'd be very surprised. I, 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 
I know we always have this in the build-up to a transfer window, and we we get very excited about the fact that the, the window is is opening, and that, you know that all these moves might happen. Generally speaking, it's always a bit of a letdown in January, and it's only the desperate clubs that are really coming in for for players. I don't see City as a desperate club, even even in pursuit of all the trophies that they that they'll be going for at that stage. Three trophies, presumably, they will trust their process. They will. They know what they achieved last season with Sergio Aguero playing a bit part role for them and, and not having that, that natural number nine up top. And they will be confident that the players that they have on the books can can fill that void. And then in the summer, I'm sure Pep Guardiola and the recruitment team up there will, will look at their options and see who's available and, and maybe Haaland comes into play then. Mm. Looking forward to, to January, Paul. City have got... West Ham next at the Etihad on Sunday. West Ham, excellent in the Europa League. I read the column by their new investor, Daniel Kutinsky, in the, the Standard on Thursday, basically saying, look, they won't go big in January. And he's been really impressed with David Moyes. The statement of the obvious that, but it's worth restating, isn't it? Yes. And David Moyes has set a standard in every game that the players are, are meeting. You know, previous West Ham teams, when they had little runs and flourishes, it would fizzle out after three or four games, wouldn't it? And then they'd, then they'd revert to type. Now, Moyes has got the players very comfortable with, a, with, with his system of play, with the work ethic, with the kind of culture, if you like, in terms of what he expects of them. And you can see those players enjoying it, most of all. I mean, it, it's, it's an unfamiliar feeling to some of them to be in a West Ham team that's flying like this, and they're clearly getting quite hooked on it. And Moyes is just keeping it going and keeping it going. And I think it would actually be a, a bad idea for them to spend lots of money in January, one, because they don't particularly need to, and two, there's no need to start sidelining players who are doing really well. Just just, just leave it, let it run its course. Let's hope you can keep this momentum up until the summer and they will need to strengthen then. But there's no need to do anything that would look slightly panicky in, in January because everything's going so well. Mm. I suppose if you look at one club that might take a, a bit of a lunge is Newcastle. Dom, that defence needs wholesale revision, doesn't it? What about the midfield if, if Eddie Howe persists with that 3-4-3 that he um, favoured from a distance uh, in his first game? Well, if he, if he pursues that tactic, then good luck to whoever plays in defence, quite frankly, because they're, really, they're not really geared to give them much of a shield in, in, in midfield. They need, they need injection of quality up and down the spine of the team, It'll be interesting to see how much money they do spend in 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 January. They are one of the sort of desperate clubs that 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 will presumably enter the market and attempt to to prize players of of quality from rivals. I mean, Tarkovsky keeps getting mentioned from Burnley, but I don't I can't see Burnley being that keen to to lose him mid season with their own situation near near the foot of the table as well. Yeah, I mean, look, Eddie Howe I think has recognised very early on that certainly coming leading up to January. The assets in that Newcastle team are the forward players. If he's got a fit Callum Wilson, I mean, he's, he appears to have, even in absentia, he appears to have revived Joe Linton to make him something more approachable to a £40 million forward, judging by that performance last weekend. John Joe Shelby, he's pinned his colours to very, very early on in the piece, and he's got Sam Maximan, who's, I think, most Premier League teams would be quite keen to have in their in their ranks. So if that is the... If that is what the group that is going to set Newcastle apart in terms of the relegation struggle, then then by all means he should go with them, and that will hopefully mean quite an attack-minded and exciting period of of, of games before he can actually attack the defensive re, re, reinforcements that he so clearly needs in January. It's all very well drawing at home to Brentford, another team that's quite open at the moment, actually, given their own injury problems, but. Going to Arsenal and playing better teams, you know, you can see the situation, even with Eddie Howell in charge, where Newcastle are ripped to pieces in the weeks ahead. They might score a few more goals than they were managing under Steve Bruce, but but it's a high-risk strategy. So they're at Arsenal in the BT Sport Saturday lunchtime game. Paul, Arsenal's 
youth policy such as it is, you know, obviously we, we've seen you know, Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe come, uh, come through and play absolutely fundamental roles this season. Uh, do you think that's sustainable in the long term? And do you think the next stage might be filtering someone like Odegaard in at the expense of Lacazette? Yes, every time you uh, bump into an Arsenal fan, they always ask you the same question. What do you think of Arteta? You know, Arsenal fans are (laughs) are currently completely suspended on this line between thinking we're going places and I'm not sure about Arteta. Do you know what I mean? It's it's, it's very delicately poised there at the moment. Uh, I think the signs of of progress and coherence are good enough for for Arsenal fans to take heart. There's absolutely no way they're going to go steaming into the top four anytime soon, but that shouldn't really be the objective. It has to be step by step because they're in a really bad place. And I think, yes, Arteta's having to sift through the older, more established names he has in that squad and decide how quickly uh, he replaces them with younger, hungrier players and how, how, how quickly he can do that without unbalancing the team. He still needs the old pros, the underperforming, in many cases, old pros. But ultimately, the future of the club, the only future they have really at the moment is, is in youth and in, in academy players and, and developing them steadily over time. So the fans are going to have to be patient. Uh, and to answer your original question, yes, you know, Lacazette looks like one of those who will just be moved on at some stage. But he needs the players that they bring in as well. They can't just rely on the academy players. They need to get into the market next summer and buy buy serious players who can who can help the young players develop. What do you think of Arteta, Dom? I know that's a stunningly original question. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, actually, also, what do you think the pros and cons are? He was, he's been talking up the idea of Arsene Wenger coming back to the club in some sort of nebulous ambassadorial type role what are the pros and cons of that well I think the cons are fairly obvious it's it's odd for a, an incumbent head coach to to bring in somebody that uh, he would be hovering on his shoulder potentially and telling him no oh, you don't want to do it like that you want to do it like this I lifted that straight from David Squires's cult cartoon from the week regarding Solskjaer and Ferguson but it's there's a lot of sense. I mean, Arsene Wenger should be involved in in club football, and he should be involved in Arsenal. I mean, that's in some capacity. I mean, you'd like to think that he would have something to offer. And if if you know the pro is if if Michael Arteta sees some value in in tapping into that knowledge, which if he's if he's confident enough in his own ability, then 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 maybe that won't be a problem. He, he the, his presence, Wenger's presence, wouldn't be a problem at all. If he feels he can learn something from the man, which he you know, you'd imagine that he would, given given what Wenger achieved in the game, then then there would be major positives in having him in some capacity. Ambassadorial's a bit, I don't know, it doesn't really mean anything, does it? It's just, I mean, at the moment, what is Arsene Wenger an ambassador for the Blooming World Cup every two years, isn't he? I mean, it's not exactly, I don't know, it's not, not a brilliantly defined role, but what do I think of Arteta? I, I, I think, I think, in years to come, we'll probably look back and think he made some real progress in this in this period. Difficult at the moment when you know you have a good run and then you have a, a humiliating defeat, which just reminds you of of where Arsenal actually are in the pecking order. And they're, as Paul says, they're nowhere near the top four. But that ten match run was sort of tempting and tantalising, wasn't it? It was almost like oh, we were getting there, we're getting there. Actually, we're not getting there as quickly as we thought we were. But much like their transfer policy last summer, where they spent an awful lot of money and were hugely criticised, hugely not least on this podcast, I suspect that a lot of the players that they brought in last summer, in time, will look back and think, "Wow, they did well in the summer of 2021." That that formed the core of a a group that's going to carry Arsenal forward. And yes, they need to carry on. They 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 can't just stop there. It's it's a it's a process. Next summer, they have to do probably something similar. And they'll have to revitalise the, the forward line when it comes to Lacazette departing and Aubameyang departing as well. But but I think that, that, that they're doing more things right than wrong. It's just it'll probably be a history that shows that rather than rather than the present, unfortunately. Mm. Now we're always looking around for the next managerial saga, Paul. Are we going to find it at Everton? Only one point in five games, so so Rafa is under understandable pressure, isn't he? 
Yeah, Everton are an amazing spectacle, really. When you think that they appointed Carlo Ancelotti, then they appointed Rafa Benitez, and they've struggled in, in both cases. And there's something wrong there when when two top managers, winning managers, go into a club and, and start hitting brick walls the way they both have. It comes back, in a way, to this idea that, that you know, there are these messiah managers out there and all you need to do is get them through the door and everything will be transformed, you know. And when it doesn't happen, everybody says, oh, well, we, we picked the wrong messiah, let's get a, let's get a new one in. You know, there's, there's, clearly, there's clearly something structurally wrong at Everton, probably with the recruitment that is confounding the efforts of, of some of the best managers. At some point, if this run continues, everybody will start saying, well, Benitez was the wrong choice for this and that reason. He's, you know, he's out of his time. His time has passed. And there will be all these um, retrospective, condemnatory judgments about Rafa Benitez. But when you put, you put Benitez together with Ancelotti and you ask yourself why Everton still can't make headway, then you have to ask yourself whether it's not about the manager. They hardly have any players at the moment either, which doesn't help. I mean, they're all injured. All of their key players seem to be out. They've got Andros Townsend playing central midfield at Manchester City. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's 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 left them horrifically stretched. But I completely agree with Paul. I mean, I think Benitez is is basically the full guy here. He's he's suffering from the the poor recruitment of two, three, four managers really, and. You know they're not in a position where they can really go out and spend now. We saw in the summer their, their transfer business consisted of getting Damari Gray on a, an absolute steal from Leverkusen, Andros Townsend on a free, and a, you know, the free transfers were really what they were dealing in. And we, re, in that context, we can't really be that surprised that they're struggling and, and on their worst run, I think, since two thousand and five. It's it's uh, it's it's bleak times, but you know they'll be better when the lights of Decore are coming back into the team and they, they actually get some players back in the building. Yeah, they were at uh, Brentford on Sunday, Paul. Yeah, I think by common consent, very refreshing newcomers. They've got a run of four defeats, which they ended with that 3-3 draw at Newcastle. I just want to dwell on the wider issue of, of, a, of a club's culture. I thought Brentford's was, was summarised quite neatly by that decision to keep the current shirt for next season. So in other words, they're not going to milk their fans for yet another shirt yeah, I found that great. What about you? Me too. I mean, we'll talk about Tracy Crouch's fan-led review later, I'm sure. But ultimately, I think uh, clubs, there's a lot that clubs can do to give themselves uh, an identity and to, and to maintain a healthy relationship with their supporters and to be a football club rather than a, a corporation. And some of them are small, some of them are big. And keeping your kit for next season, as, as Brentford have done, probably won't cost them that much money. In the scheme of things, with the amount of TV money flooding into the Premier League, the new NBC deal and so forth, so on and so forth, that is a, that's a simple uh, gesture to the supporters to say, look, we, we value you, we're thinking about you, and we're not going to rip you off with constant kit changes. So um, well done to them. Yeah. Early report card, please, Dom, on Stephen Gerrard. Villa at Palace. Uh, the weekend. I'm sure you're going to tell me that Palace are quiet achievers under under Vieira. I know it's only one game, but you know, let's extrapolate from that one game. Is he made for the Premier League? Yes. Definitely made for the Premier League and I think he's he's probably will he will prove an excellent appointment at Aston Villa. I don't think we should get too carried away yet in terms of the impact that he can he can make in terms of you know where he can take Aston Villa I mean on the back of of, of one win and a, a win secured very late as well amid quite a lot of Brighton possession heard that before but yeah he just I think it's great I, I can't wait to see Gerard and Vieira on the touchline as as managers I think that's just that's just brilliant they were they were they had a few duels on the pitch over the years I remember a Community Shield. One of our mates, Rocky uh, Paul Joyce, at the times was was reminding me of it in the week back. In, I think it was two thousand and three. I want to say, and that the Gerard was flying in recklessly on on Vieira from about the first the first or second minute of the game, and just <laughs> this was just this is two heavyweights here, and they will have a huge presence on the on the touchline at, at Sellers Park. I think that's. I think that's absolutely brilliant to see them see them both in the Premier League and and 
Vieira certainly has taken to to life in that in that division already, and and Steven Gerrard, I'm sure, will follow him. He he just looks he just looks a good fit. I know Christian Persley has obviously been pursuing him for some time, and 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 it was always sort of destined to happen at at Aston Villa while Persley was there. But that's a that's a big club. It's a club with a lot of resources. It's a club that had just only slightly lost their way. I mean, it was just one poor run really that that, that did for Dean Smith. But it's almost like they've been itching to bring in that heavyweight calibre presence. You can't say heavyweight calibre manager yet because he's only done it at Rangers. But but he just yeah he he just he just looks as if he's he's going to be the part in the in the Premier League and. I'm intrigued to see how it will go. I'm intrigued to see how he uh, he adjusts tactically to to playing to so the challenge that the weekly challenge that the Premier League provides. Mm. You spoke earlier, Paul, of of Messiah managers. That brings us quite neatly to Antonio Conte. He came, I thought, with the understatement of the week after that horrendous defeat in in Slovenia. At this moment, the level at Tottenham is not so high. It took him three and a half weeks to work that one out. <laughs> yeah, his plea of mitigation wasn't in his outbox for long, was it? Um, it <laughs> three and a half weeks and it's already posted on the wall at um, at the Tottenham Stadium. You know, he's basically saying, I can't work like this. Um, <laughs> you know, this squad isn't isn't good enough. What have I walked into here? That's the That's the underlying message now. My view of the Conte signing was that it was a marriage of convenience because... Spurs had just sacked Nuno after 17 games. That was highly embarrassing. There was a sense of chaos there. They made Conte an offer in the summer he could refuse and in the autumn they made him an offer that he couldn't refuse. So for him, it was a chance to make an awful lot of money and walk into a famous club and maybe do some good and, and uh, you know, play in a wonderful stadium. Nothing to lose for him, really. But it's interesting that he's already putting his mitigation in place, you know, so that if it doesn't work out and he can't improve this team, he can just turn around at the end of it and say, well, you know, look what they gave me to work with. And he must know that, that Spurs aren't going to give him hundreds of millions of pounds to spend in the, in the transfer budget. If he thought they would, he's naive, but I don't think he's naive. He's anything but naive. The club lost um, £80 million last year. The debt is £706 million. They're not a big spending club anyway. So I can't believe that he ever thought they were going to give him this this huge transfer budget to work with. And he may well be shocked that the level of the squad below about seven or eight players in the starting eleven is worrying. He'd be right to be worried. Other managers have grappled with that problem in the past. And he's just confronting reality. But... As you said, Mike, it's remarkable that he only took three and a half weeks to start saying it. <laughs> because he looked at that Mura game, Dom, and metaphorically at least, there's probably at least four or five players already in the dustbin, one of whom I suspect will be Deli Alley. What about his fall from grace? It's it's awful, isn't it? Yeah, very sad, actually, considering, I mean, he was, he was a mainstay for England, let alone Spurs, not long ago, and it... Yeah, it has it has wavered, and, and and I'm sure that the instability at Spurs in terms of the the churn of managers has probably played a part in it. Different managers asking different things of him, and he just hasn't been able to to click into gear with with any of them really since since Pochettino. So yeah, it, it's sad, and and you know when when Conte came in, I think a lot of people assumed that he was going to make Deli Ali his project, and that, you know if you can revive Deli Ali, you revive Tottenham Hotspur, but. I think already, just as I shared Paul's bewilderment that it's that it's happened so soon in terms of the outburst, but but we're seeing Conte in second season Chelsea mode here, and almost becoming political. Maybe he's doing it just to shock the players into into a response and and to and and to try and get the the standards that he saw in the second half against Leeds which is pretty much the only time they've played well, maybe the first 20 minutes of his debut against Vitesse as well, when they, they believe Vitesse were away in that, in that period. But, but it's, it's, it's really not been great so far, any of it. I mean, it's, there have been long periods in matches where they've been substandard. And, you know, when you've got people like Deli Alli, who are completely in, unable, it seems, to, to rekindle some of their, their, their former glories, their, their, you know, their, their former form... Well, it just it just adds to adds to the drama. I, that's going to be a hell of a pantomime that that place for the rest of this season. 
3 January, God, bloody hell. If they don't sign a £50 million player every day in January, then he's just going to be throwing his toys out of the pram. <laughs> it's going to be quite staggering to watch, but there you go. Well, it is pantomime season, I suppose, isn't it? Right, finally, uh, let's have a look at Tracy Crouch's uh, fan-led review. 47 recommendations. Well-intentioned, excellent. Perhaps some of them, the ideas not new, but valid. That 10% temp- that transfer tax, the independent regulator, an acknowledgement of the need for fan influence, new owner tests, player welfare. Yeah, it ticks a lot of boxes. But does it have, Paul, and you know, we've all been around the block politically in football, haven't we? Does it have enough momentum to be a catalyst for real change? Well, I hope so. It's, it's the biggest and, and best call to arms that we've seen uh, in recent years from what you call real football, if you like. You know, the real football that killed off the Super League and certainly a call to arms for fans and people who love the game. The big gap, obviously, is between reviews and recommendations and good intentions and legislation. Some of these uh, recommendations will be lobbied against from the first minute by the Premier League clubs. We've already seen that. Christian Perslow was doing the rounds the other day on the radio to try and, you know, uh, nullify some of these recommendations. Let's not forget that uh, the Premier League is a powerful lobbyist. It will have contacts in Whitehall, Westminster. It will be pushing MPs and the government to water these recommendations down and in some cases kill them off altogether. So it's going to be a a fight, really, between the good intentions and the very sound recommendations that we've seen and the government's willingness to actually push them through and enact them. And, and, you know, if you trust this government to do the right thing, you've got a different perspective on it to me. So it may not happen, but I just hope it does, because uh, there's a lot in this report that will improve the game and strengthen the hand of people who want to see the game prosper in the right way against the interests of uh, plutocrats. Yeah, those interests, Dom, uh, Paul mentioned Christian Perslow there. I thought, to be frank, those interviews that he did, actually, it it was obviously he was primed to talk down the whole idea of independent regulation. But I thought he came across as being very dismissive and quite disingenuous. You know, everything good in English football sits in the Premier League. Well, you know, we love the Premier League as a as a as a sporting product, but that's nonsense. Of course, it is. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Maybe I'm biased here, but I think if they if the Premier League ever want to get one of their chairmen to go out and and to talk to to the masses and ex- put their position and, and, and gain some sympathy, then they should probably just stick to Steve Parrish, probably. He seems to be the one that seems to express himself the best and seems made for those situations. But look, you, you're, you're right. It's it, it's the, the arrogance of to assume that English football is just really about the Premier League and that's that's where it all is, 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 is staggering and it's the, the pyramid is everything. And 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 that that is hence the the intention that in in the in the report for for recommendations for for things like the transfer levy that would potentially bring what's it one hundred and sixty million pounds wasn't it that was going down yeah. the pyramid I mean look at it. I, I I suspect that is very unlikely to ever happen I suspect that will be resisted right up there not least because I think the I think the Premier League already pays something like four percent to the PFA. Of, in a transfer levy already, and they they won't want to dilute the money coming into them any any further. But 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 the principles of these are, are right. Trying to to provide some kind of some greater trickle down effect into the into the pyramid is has to be for the benefit of of the game as as a whole. It, English football and the success of the Premier League is is really there because of the pyramid system and 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 the quality that across the five divisions and, and indeed into non-league, but below that as well. So I hope that, that that it's not completely dismissed and that we don't see a hugely watered-down version of it coming in coming to pass eventually. Just, just a little as a little counter, and I, and I should say this, I, I, we, we shouldn't forget also that, that, that even the Premier, Premier League clubs in particular, but but all, all you know professional clubs do a hell of a lot for their communities, generally speaking. I was at an event last night, a foundation last night, where 
where a lot of money is being poured into uh, combating knife crime in in in, in London, and it, you look at the, the sort of community hubs that they that they are they remain, and and there is a commitment there amongst a lot of clubs to do that, and it, we we shouldn't forget that is this isn't just a this isn't just an, an opportunity to attack the Premier League. I think a lot of Premier League clubs really do pour an awful lot of resources into into schemes like that, so there has to be a bit of balance. But but yes, it's ensuring something that goes down into a trickle-down effect, a greater trickle-down effect that, that safeguards the, the future of clubs outside the Premier League is, is equally important. Mm, because, the, you know, the irony is that most of the money that is supposed or, or you know, is projected as trickling down, i.e. parachute payments, are actually you know, making the whole problem worse. Just as a final point, Paul, and this is something we've spoken about in the past. You, know, you have an uh, affiliation with Lewis Fanon Club. On the broadest possible level, what can the ordinary supporter do to show his or her support for their football club? Well, that's a that's a very good question. Um, turn up is the first answer. Uh, you know, uh, go to matches, lend your support, put money through the turnstile. You know, support the initiatives that these clubs are uh, uh, enacting, and 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 perhaps get involved where you can, and and just become, a, you know, a member of the, the of the of the club in the in the broader sense. Um, but it starts. I think it starts with turning up and, and and supporting and being part of it, really. And then from there, obviously, all fans have to be vigilant. They have to they have to know now that these clubs don't exist by right, they have to be protected and that sometimes there are hostile forces, owners and so on, opportunistic owners who might, you know, want to damage them. So football fans, particularly nowadays, always have to be on their guard and always be protective of their local clubs. Mm. Well, hidden away in that 162-page report was a, a fascinating insight into how fans regard the governing bodies of the game. Nearly 18,000 of them offered their views. Uh, 56% said the Premier League's performance was poor or very poor. Uh, 49% delivered a similar verdict on the EFL. And 44% were distinctly unimpressed by the Football Association. I'm not surprised, to be honest, but make no mistake, those organisations will fight tooth and nail against independent regulation. I think they must be defeated. Do you agree, like many of those in the survey? If so, please let me know. If you don't, please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Paul and Dom for their insight, and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.